Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The coronavirus pandemic has been the big disruptor of 2020. The disruption that the pandemic has caused to the education system has ranged from kids having a transition to remote learning in an instant, parents experiencing burnout trying to help their kids learn and balance work life, and it's also caused a teacher shortage. Early retirements and quarantines are forcing some school administrators to recruit parents as substitute teachers, increase class sizes, and even use bus drivers to babysit classrooms. Arizona in particular has been hit hard by a shortage of teachers, and many say that educational achievement has suffered because of it. At the start of the school year in August, school districts weren't able to hire traditionally certified teachers for 78% of over 6,000 open positions in Arizona. Half of those positions ended up being filled by emergency substitutes, recruits from other countries, and student teachers. For more on this teacher shortage, we'll speak to Valerie Borline, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal. You really can't overstate the disruption that's happening in K-12 and all education in this country, particularly in the public schools. You know, it was one thing in the spring to have that rush of adrenaline and we're going to make virtual learning work and get through the spring. And now as the pandemic drags on into its ninth month, you're seeing parents frustrated kids not learning as much as they should have by now, and teachers really starting to burn out. And all the disruption that you're talking about is adding up to a real um, difficult working environment for teachers, and you're seeing people leave the profession. You're also seeing commonly in many school districts that there are not enough teachers in the building to hold class, whether because they're quarantining or what have you. So it really, the staffing crunch in American schools is something you can't underestimate. Back to the teachers, you know, the staffing crunch, really the teachers that stay behind, then those are the ones that get really fatigued by the whole thing. They're the ones that get the burnout of the whole thing. And a lot of the teachers and administrators I spoke with say exactly that. Like, it's tough now. It's tough for teachers to have to sub out for another teacher during their planning time, for example. But what's really tough is the burnout factor and whether that teachers will stay in the field or potentially retire early. And also, one thing to think about is whether... What's happening in the school system entices young people to go into teaching. They see what's happening firsthand, and will they decide to go that route, seeing how tough it is for their own teachers that they admire and and in some cases really see being overwhelmed. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, public school employment in November was down 8.7% from February. This is the lowest level since 2000. And you guys have a nice little graph that's showing the progression of employment. Mm -hmm. And you just see that sharp drop earlier this year and throughout the pandemic, Arizona has shown a real stark contrast in all of this. They've been heavily impacted by this. I thought that the statistic from the Bureau of Labor Statistics was really eye-opening. If you think about it, schools have almost 9% fewer people in the building, but the building is the same size. The responsibilities are the same, if not more. And because of physical social distance, Teachers can have fewer kids in the classroom, so in some ways they're stretched thinner. So what really struck me visiting some schools was how being off, having 9% 
fewer people in the building taxes the others that are there. And to your point about Arizona, yes, I think this is happening in pockets all across the country. And Arizona certainly is one that educators I talked to, including this head of state superintendent, just said, yeah, it's a crisis for us. Let's get a little deeper in Arizona. They weren't able to hire traditionally certified teachers for 78% of some open positions that they had. So they had to get creative. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were filled by emergency substitutes. You know, obviously you get people from other counties. Student teachers were a big source of uh, plugging Mm -hmm. that hole there. And then beyond that, they're urging parents, people with, you know, they reduced some of the requirements. So there are people with high school diplomas can take an online course and then be certified for emergency substitutes. So they're getting very creative with how to fill a lot of these positions. If you think about it, they're required to have, you know, not just legally, but, you know, morally, they're educators. They want to educate. They need to have teachers in the rooms virtually or physically, but they're having to get really creative to make that happen. So, The relaxing around standards is a theme you hear all over the country. Iowa and Missouri, for example, lowered the requirements to be an emergency substitute. In Atlanta, you could be 20 years old. And we talked to some kids that were 20 years old and not teachers, but physically in the the classroom. So I think it's one of those things Arizona has had is an example of a state that's had a teacher shortage building for a number of years. You know, as you might remember, the Red for Ed protest of 2018 really started in Phoenix and and kind of blossomed out in other places around the country. So the teacher shortage, comparatively low teacher pay there, the really high ratio of students to teachers, there's like 23 and a half students per teacher in Arizona compared to 16 kids per teacher nationally. So there are just a lot of pressure points there building up. And then the, the combination of that, that wave of teacher shortage building, crashing up against the wave of the pandemic, it's really created a tough situation in many, many Arizona schools. You have a lot of examples in the article. They're all very good. But I wanted to focus a little bit, if you can, on Principal Christine Hollingsworth. This is mm-hmm. in Phoenix. And they're having severe staff shortages there. She was up uh, until, you know, early in the morning trying to find a substitute teacher. In many cases, she's stepping in to help teach classes. Other teachers are combining classes. Tell us a little bit about how they're approaching this. One of the things that was really amazing being around Principal Hollingsworth was just how she was one of the ones who kept saying, it's all hands on deck. We're figuring it out as we go because we have to. But I should note that just how cheerful, how positive she was, how much she loved seeing even the small cohort of students that was able to be in the building. She was so happy to see them and look through their mask and say, hey, I can see I can see your smile under there. So, I, you know, I would say that teachers are really and administrators are trying to make the best of a, of a really tough situation. But the day that I spent some time with her, she was having a hard time finding a substitute. There's nationwide pressure on substitute teachers, and there's just not enough of them. And she couldn't find a substitute for her art teacher, even though she'd been trying. She was up at four that morning trying to find someone and figure out how she was going to handle it. And I was like, well, gosh, you were up at four and it's, it's eight, school's starting. She's like, I'm up at four every day <laughs> this year. And I think that's part of the reality is that, that, that we were talking about earlier. It's just as this stretches on, kind of where are we headed? Is this the, the new normal for schools is, is constant change every day. It has been for nine months. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Miss Hollingsworth went onto this uh, elementary school database to see if she can fill a bunch of these open seats. And I guess they only got five applicants for dozens of teaching jobs. This is across 32 different elementary schools. So, I mean, that's just really kind of illustrates how short this thing is. And we were talking about other creative options. You know, sometimes a teacher will come on and 
say, man, this is just not for me anymore. And then they quit within a first couple of weeks or so. And that was kind of another recurring theme that a lot of people were experiencing. Mm -hmm. So it's just a tough time overall. And obviously we need more funding for these programs, for the teachers. It's just tough all around, really, well, with the pandemic. It's a difficult situation for online learning and hybrid learning all around, like you said. I will um, point out that the pressure in schools is more intense in some places than others, right? So in rural areas, for example, it's really hard right now to get teachers to fill jobs. But in cities where there's good quality of living and, you know, maybe, a, you know, support for teachers in schools, you, you might have far more applicants for jobs. So it's uneven, but I think there's definitely pressure on the teacher supply in many, many places nationwide. Valerie Borline, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, sure. Thanks so much for having me. Finally for this week, why are Americans so distrustful of each other? Social trust in the U.S. is dropping, and it's one of those things that once it's lost, it's very difficult to regain. Research has found that a country's level of social trust is related to three main factors, corruption, ethnic segregation, and economic inequality. But trust is not limited to those factors alone and can't be explained away by them as well. Political polarization can also be a key factor. According to the General Social Survey and the American National Election Survey, in the early 1970s, half of Americans said that most people can be trusted. Today, that figure is less than one-third. For more on why it's so hard to trust our fellow citizens, we'll speak to Kevin Vallier, author of Trust in a Polarized Age. So the main concept with social trust, to understand about social trust, is it's trust that we place in strangers in our society. So people that we don't necessarily interact with very much, like people that we drive on the road with. So it's not trust in your family. It's not trust in your friends. It's trust in your society broadly. It's also not trust in particular institutions, though our trust in institutions and government and things are falling. So that's the kind of trust that we're looking at. And it's measured all over the world, but it's been measured in the U.S. the longest. And what we see is a pattern from the uh, late 60s where about 55 percent of people say most people can be trusted, falling gradually um, to 2018 when we have the most recent data 32% of people say that most people can be trusted. We've seen a 23-point decline, and that's really unheard of in any established democracy. There's some less stable democracies. So I just wanted to point out how very unique and what a unique position we're in. We're unique in another way as well, which is that our level of political polarization is the highest in any democratic country that's measured in terms of polarization. And that's just a correlation. But the way that I try to connect the two as we look at other potential explanations for social trust, and they don't actually pan out very well. So ethnic diversity, for instance. We haven't become that much more ethnically diverse over the last 40 years within particular communities or locales where that starts to matter, um, where racial differences or ethnic differences become really salient. So ethnic diversity or increases in ethnic diversity aren't a good candidate for explaining lower social trust. We have seen an increase in economic inequality. A lot of people think that that drives lower trust, but there is some international data suggesting that even if inequality uh, has some role, actually most of the explanations in the other direction, that social trust is what makes people friendlier to the redistribution of wealth in the first place. So it's countries that have high social trust that have a higher preference for welfare state policies. Then the third explanation is corruption. We do know that corruption can drive social trust lower, but 
given on the World Bank's control of corruption index, we haven't actually become more corrupt. Well, at least up until 2016. We'll see what the numbers are later for after that. So the three main explanations, I think, diversity, inequality, and corruption just aren't present in the United States in the right kind of way. And so what I've tried to explore is the idea that our extreme political polarization is driving our social distrust. And I can just throw another statistic at you that's very fascinating. In 2017, about 70 percent of Republicans say they don't trust people who voted for Hillary, like not just Hillary, but people who (laughs) voted for her, right? Right. But the exact reverse was true. So 70 percent of Democrats say they can't trust people who voted for Trump. So all that's really going on, I think, is that our partisan distrust is translating into social distrust. We're thinking, okay, I can't trust. I just had a guy comment on my Facebook feed. He said he's a he's a Democrat. And he said, look, I would trust people more if 40 percent of them weren't terrible fascists. (laughs) That's literally what he said. It's a distrust <laughs> attitude, right? Yeah, but, um, but you're right. I mean, reflects where we are. This political polarization that we've been seeing for many years now, obviously this year is really evident. You know, we see it when the president's saying, don't believe our political institution, don't believe the elections. We can't do that. And, <laughs> and the same thing, just exactly on the other side, you know, the president will do something, accomplish something, sign a bill, whatever. And you have the other side saying, well, this doesn't work. This is wrong for the country. And we get into this us versus them mentality. Then, mm-hmm. And then we're just fighting constantly. And we're yep. seeing it with the pandemic right now. The polarization mm-hmm. of just the vaccine by itself was such a crazy I thing know. to see. And we need that thing to get back to normal. But we see polls all that also say they don't trust the government institutions. They don't trust the vaccine itself. So this social trust kind of goes beyond, you know, all of that. It, it just kind of makes its way to all facets of our life right now. I do think that there's various kinds of distrust that are increasing. I'm going to be very sad when we see the numbers on the trust in the CDC. I'm sure that they have collapsed. There's distrust falling in Congress. It's fallen in the last 50 years, about 70 uh, or let's see, yeah, 50 points, at least a solid 50 points. Presidential trust, trust in the president as actually extremely polarized. So, you know, 8% of Republicans thought the government would mostly do the right thing when Obama was president. Well, with Trump, it's gone up a lot and Democrats, it's gone down a lot. But yeah, the us versus them mentality, I think, is primed by our lower social distrust. It makes polarization easier to form and it makes it worse. So, for instance, if you're in a high trust situation and you know that people disagree with you, but you can trust them anyway. That's not such a big deal, right? Because you can usually find some way to resolve your differences. It's low trust that makes polarization a really big problem because when you encounter someone who disagrees with you, you don't think they're of goodwill, you think they're of bad will, and you may think that it's because of their bad will that they believe what they believe. So look, someone only votes for Trump because they're a racist, whereas say in a higher trust country, someone who voted for a populist candidate might not be treated in the same way. So I think it's really important to understand that the fall in social trust is kind of setting the stage for a huge amount of what we're seeing. It makes it easier to be tribalized. Here's another reason for this. We tend to listen better to people that we trust. And what we find is higher trust people tend to have more centrist opinions. Not that centrists are always correct, but just that people are better able to hear each other. Low trust people tend to be more conspiratorial in their thinking. So as our social trust falls, we can expect, I think, from distrust in media and distrust in basic factual narratives and for almost anything to be polarizable if leaders decide to do that. 
So Trump decides, you know, he doesn't want to lose. So he tries to polarize people and their trust in the election. I mean, one of the things he's so extraordinarily effective at is being able to polarize any particular issue to keep any consensus about what he's disapproval from forming. Um, But I also think that lower trust laid the groundwork for that, because if you think that elites can't be trusted, then what do you want to do? You want to drain the swamp. You want to get rid of the elite class. You want to replace them. I'm not all about everything American elites do by any stretch of the imagination. But one pattern that you do see in particular is that falling trust in government can lead to increased populist voting. And the problem is that when you get the populist in, they don't have a lot of experience and they don't have very good networks. So what do they do? They rely on their family. And that actually creates more opportunities for corruption. So the worry is that populism and populist candidates and parties aren't actually going to drain the swamp. They don't even know how to do it and so aren't going to make things better. So, again, decline in social trust is setting the stage for all kinds of other phenomena that we see. And once we understand the importance of social trust, that we can start to make sense of our social world a bit better. Losing that trust is very easy. Regaining that trust is the Mm. difficult thing. How do we regain that trust? How do we build that back up? Obviously, a lot of it is leading by example, things like that. But what do you do when uh, we've been in this decline and and we need to reverse that? I hate to be the bearer of bad news. (laughs) I expected Um, this already. But we can slow down the loss in social trust, I think, particularly by working on the factors that do matter. I do think that we can compress some income inequality through a, a number of different methods that I talk about in the book, some unconventional. I do think that we can work to protect government from corruption. There's a really good bill, H.R. 1, with the House. The House passed last year, the For the People Act, that I think would do a lot to reduce corruption, like by requiring presidents to divest when they come into office to release their tax returns and those kinds of things. And I think there's a lot more we can do for ethnic integration as well in schools and residential areas by like ending redlining and mortgages and stuff like that. That creates a sort of racial inequity in housing. So there's a number of things we can do to sort of stymie the loss. But here's the problem. I work with some trust economists that are Scandinavian, and they just study the the, the crap out of trust because they've got so much of it. They want to know why. (laughs) And what they've taught me, though, is that there's no country that set out to increase its level of social trust and that has succeeded that we know of from that we have any data on. So we just don't know how to get it back. And part of this is because we don't really know how the human species evolved to do it. We're the ultra social species compared to everything but like bees and ants. But somehow we were able to go from trusting other people in our clan, right? Trusting people 50, 50 other people, 150 other people to being able to trust people all the way across the world. And we don't know why that is. So one of my next projects is to try to figure out how social trust is learned. And if we figure out how it's learned, then maybe we could figure out how to get it back. But all I can say is, it's one of the great mysteries of social science. Right. And it's work. It's hard work that we got to put into it. So yes. uh, definitely, I'd be very interested to hear your follow-up on all of this. Kevin Vallier, professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University and author of Trust in a Polarized Age. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank, thank you so much. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.